0: Let's pray together. Father, we bow before your throne, remembering our precious Savior, his love and his death for us, and the new life that we have. We thank you, Lord, for you and your Father's love for us, and for the gift of your Holy Spirit. And now we pray, O Lord, that you will send your Spirit to guide us into all truth, to warm our hearts, to fill us with love and compassion, and to enable us to be truly committed to you, our triune God. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. On Thursday night I sought to address the subject of the prophet Habakkuk, a prophet with a burden, with a concern for his people. On Friday night, I went beyond that, because in looking at chapter one of Habakkuk in the context of mission, we saw that it was in the context of war, of conflict, of great dangers. When we got into chapter two, my message had to do with what is God saying to us, because that was the question the prophet asked in verse one of chapter two. Given the context that was deteriorating, then what is God saying? And we sought to look at the voice of God into that situation. And then we looked at how the world was posing great threats to the people of God. But there was also an internal problem of the reality of Babylon. And Babylon herself posed a new threat to the people of God. And I looked at the five characteristics of Babylon, the supreme pride, the supreme arrogance that says, I must have the best, everything exists for me. We looked at the second aspect of that, of of acquisition, of covetousness, everything exists for me, I want the bigger house, the better life. We then went on to look at the oppression of the weak, the vulnerable, of how a society looks at its weakest members and the brokenness that exists. We looked at a society that was collapsing, because its moral base had collapsed. And so, immorality had entered in at every realm, even in its most uh, vilest forms. And then we concluded with idolatry. Because, you know, when people reject the one true God, they begin to worship every other God that they can find, to give them pleasure. I want to move now to my final talk as we are very much still in the context of mission and I want us to now to look at God. Not just what God is saying but now what God is doing. Now as I painted that rather grim picture in chapter 2, there was a verse that I did not deal with because that verse falls better in This morning's message is chapter 2 and verse 14. In chapter 2 and verse 14, you have a verse for mission. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, why is this verse important? If I ask you what is the Protestant missionary verse over the past two hundred years, you'd probably say to me, Matthew. You all know Matthew's Matthew? You give me the end of the verse, the beginning and the end of the verse. Matthew, which chapter and which verse? Matthew 28, go ye into all the world. The emphasis is on discipleship, engagement, missionary work, And many a missionary responded to go into the world and to preach the gospel. If you go to the Middle East, and you are with the Middle Eastern Christians, particularly of the Orthodox churches, do you know what their missionary verse is? It's not, go ye into all the world and to preach the gospel. It's taken from John's gospel. A new commandment I give unto you that you love one another as I have loved you by this shall all men know that you are my disciples so you've got the protestant verse permission you've got the orthodox verse permission but what you have here in habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14 is the reformers verse permission because it was this verse of scripture that the reformers in the period of the Reformation in Europe took up as they saw the world at large and looked at their engagement with that world. Remember their context. They were fighting great battles with the Catholic Church, with the state. Many of them had gone to the stake and had been martyred. They were facing a dreadful time a time of great persecution. And when you sing some of those old mighty majestic hymns, remember that they came out of a church that was suffering in the period of the Reformation. And in that context, how did they see the world and their place within it? They looked to God. And as they looked upwards to God, they went beyond to the end. And by looking To the end, they discovered their hope and purpose. And what was the end that they saw? Despite the bloodshed and the iniquity and the nations uh, at war, they saw God. And the end was this. But the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The end was victorious. The end was triumphant. The end was glorious. And so by looking at the end of what God's ultimate purposes were, when he will have fulfilled his purpose, when across the whole wide world his word would spread and that there would be his church established in every corner of that world. Therein would lie their hope, and their continuance, and their faithfulness, because God's purposes will have been fulfilled. So what did it matter what they faced today? Can you get the message? It's important, you know, to see the end. I find that constantly in my own life and what God has called me to do and the work of the Barnabas Fund. You can be so taken up with suffering, so taken up with war and violence, so taken up with collapsing nations around you, with Babylon and all the difficulties, that you lose sight of God and you lose sight of the end. And if you lose sight of God, then you are filled with despair. If you lose sight of the end, there is no hope. Why continue? But you know, if you can see God and you can see the end, then you can go through every diff you can face every difficulty. You can literally encounter all the problems that the world will throw at you and still come out triumphant. Because we know the end is written. We know the end is certain, that Jesus Christ will be Lord, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ alone is Lord, Saviour, and Master, and that God's kingdom will be established. And so the reformers looked to the end, and in that end they discovered their hope to continue now what I want to do now is to continue to develop that theme of what God is doing. He shows not just the end, but now he comes to reveal himself to his servant. Chapter 3 and verse 1. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to the Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard of your renown, and I stand in awe, O Lord, of your work. In our own time, revive it. In our own time, make it known. In wrath, may you remember mercy. God came from Timan, from the, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was filled full of his praise. Looking at mission yesterday and today, forty years ago a mission conference was born. Throughout the years faithfulness saw it continue. So forty years from that moment we are here today, still following in that prophetic tradition of the first pastor who brought this mission conference into being, and have seen it continued over the years through Pastor Lee and others. What was significant about today? On Friday I sought to look back 40 years ago, but there is one point I didn't touch on. In the early 1970s, God was doing a remarkable work across the world. It was my privilege, together with Rosemary, to actually start ministry in 1969. And at the first Lausanne conference, which was in 1974, I was one of the speakers. As a young man, I had the awesome privilege of being at that conference as one of the speakers. And at that conference, I discovered quite a remarkable uh, fact But there were a number of nationals. They came out of Latin America, from Africa, from Asia and the Middle East, like myself. And it's as if we came from nowhere. And suddenly we were all there together. And we all met each other for the first time. And we wondered what on earth was going on. Because you see, prior to that, missions were the prerogative of the Western churches. And all the books that had been written were by Westerners about their engagement in the world, in Western missions. But suddenly now, there were black and brown and yellow peoples from all over the world, suddenly not just discussing mission, but engaged in mission. And I look at your church here, Calvary, in Nassau, Bahamas. And you were part of that movement. I don't know if your pastor at that time realized what he was doing, but I believe it was one of the great works of the Holy Spirit. And so at that moment in time, God chose from across the world his servants, and he began to place burdens upon the hearts of his people across the world to be concerned about his kingdom and about his work, and in that spontaneous act, unorganized, so concern for mission began to develop. And I think it's wonderful that standing here 40 years later, I can look back to what was happening here in Nassau, and saw it as a part of a global movement that was taking place. And, you know, you have, of course, to praise for this, to praise God. Because, you know, you often wonder in Christian life, is it in my own strength I'm doing something, is it what I want? But to discover that you are now part of God's plan, and that what was happening in Asia and Africa spontaneously was happening here, should give us cause for for rejoicing, because God was working through his servants and working through you, his people. So 40 years on, what is God now doing in our day? As we look at this wonderful passage on the glory and power of God being displayed. May I say, I see three significant uh, you could say events taking place today, or occurrences. The first is that we now have a worldwide church. The center of gravity of Christianity is no longer in the West. It is no longer in North America or Europe, Australia or New Zealand. It is now shifted into the non-Western world. And what we see occurring is a dramatic movement of God's Spirit right across the world. If I may just give some little illustrations. We look at China today. If you look at China 40 years ago, It was hidden behind the bamboo curtain, form of the iron curtain. What little information we had about our church was that it was being severely persecuted under Maoism. May I say today the church in China is, no one knows the numbers, 50 million, 120 million, 150 million, we do not know. We have now the Chinese government going to church leaders around Asia asking them for help to know how they should govern that nation. We have the Chinese government going into Africa and actually building churches and institutions for Christians. Who would have thought that as a possibility. There is a movement out of China now to touch the very heart of the Middle East with the gospel. That's only China. You go to India and we were there last year with the Evangelicals of India, the fellowship, and they are discussing that by the year 2020 their church may well rival that of China and possibly surpass it. Now, who would have thought that possible 40 years ago? Next month, Lord willing, we will go to Southeast Asia, a church that I I preach at there in Malaysia. My good friend uh, was involved in bringing this church into being about 15 years ago. It now numbers about 4,000. And they're all young people, and almost all of them new converts. There's a Brethren Assembly in Singapore of over 4,000 members. We're then going to Indonesia. There are over 40 million Christians, they say now, in Indonesia. It's unbelievable what has been taking place. We think of a global church. We look at the issue of the hard places. The places where the gospel has had great difficulty penetrating. Particularly, for example, the House of Islam. And we take perhaps the most hardline country in the world today, which is Iran. Over the past ten years between half a million to a million Muslims have converted to Christ. As a ministry that we have links with, and the ministry recently came to the conclusion that they had to stop uh, send, putting out the gospel messages because they could not cope with the number of inquirers. Imagine you get to that point where you have so many inquirers, you can't keep going forward again, because you're overwhelmed with what you've got. And by the way, that figure of even a million, no one is sure about that. It could be much, much higher. And you say, how is this possible? When Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in 1978-79, everyone thought the church would be finished Today, as we contemplate war with Iran, we are dealing with a church between half a million to a million or plus of all new believers. And may I say, those believers come from the very top, some of them. We've had a conference, I can't go into it, in the Middle East, where we had leadership from Iran. And some of them, family of the supreme leaders of the ayatollahs, all who have found faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Today, there are more converts from Islam to Christianity than ever before in history. And there is no country, including the hardline countries of the Middle East, where there is not a fledgling church. Now we live in that age, an age of a worldwide church for which we must praise God because it is his work, not man's work. And yet we have been involved in that through all of us across the world, through prayers, giving and going. But secondly, I believe we now see a global missionary movement. Not just the significance of a worldwide church, but rather also a mission movement that is now global. Going back to the early 1970s, we were still thinking of a Western missionary movement when suddenly God in his own way chose to raise up leadership from the non-Western world. In the 1980s, I became the General Secretary of the Two-Thirds World Missions Movement. Eighty percent of all the non-Western missions came together to form a single organization. The Latins were there, the Indonesians were there, the Koreans, the Indians, the Chinese, the Africans. And it numbered thousands upon thousands of missionaries, all of whom were going out. That was the period of massive expansion. If I look at it today, and I sit in our travels, I see a lot of that early work now taking root. And I see agencies being created at a local level to take the gospel out. Let me give you a few illustrations. You take... Central Asia in 1991 communism effectively fell the Soviet Union was dismantled and new republics were created the Stans, for example in Central Asia and for the first time you could say in history now there was freedom to preach the gospel Western missionaries went in immediately after 91 but about ten years later, many of them left, as those countries now began to put more pressure upon the church. What happened? Local believers began to take up the work of the gospel. The Lord began to save, and as he saved, so he began to push them out into evangelism and mission. We in the Barnabas Fund, and we don't talk about this, is heavily involved in all of the stars. Now you hear about Dagestan, you hear about Chechnya, you may not realize these solidly Islamic areas have seen new churches come into being. First generation Christians, and they're now sending out evangelists, and so they're pushing their evangelists into surrounding territories. Areas like Abakia, for example, or you go into Uzbekistan, or Tajikistan, all of these areas, you have missionaries now going from country to country. Afghanistan, you have missionaries from where? From Iran, going into Afghanistan, right now. Or from Uzbekistan, going into Afghanistan. And all of these places you hear about, that are war-torn areas, fought with difficulties. There's another story that is being told of how God's people are now moving out and they're seeing new churches started. They're setting up prayer houses, training centers. They're training a whole new generation of missionaries and workers to penetrate all their surrounding areas. And some of them are moving into China, even as China is moving elsewhere. That's just, may I say, one part of the world where you don't read about, no books are being written about it. But I tell you what, you know, God is at work. And I have seen mission take place in the most unlikeliest of places. You know, about ten years ago, I was in Baghdad before the invasion of Iraq took place. And As I was leaving the evangelical church, a man, a very tall gentleman, said goodbye and he left in my hand as he shook my hand an envelope. Now in those days you didn't automatically open the envelope and read what was there. Because one of Saddam's henchmen sat in the congregation. I was a foreigner. Everybody was under scrutiny. And so I waited till I crossed the border in Jordan, and I took out the letter, and I read it. The man who gave it to me, he wasn't an Arab. He was from the Horn of Africa, you could tell. The story was, was this. In 1982-83, at the start of the Iran-Iraq war, he and a number of others, Somalis, have decided to go to Iraq to join Saddam's armies to fight against the Iranians. Unfortunately for them, a number of them were captured in the first week of the war. And the Iranian forces, being Shia, decided to torture them, to get them to convert from the Sunni branch of Islam to the Shia. And they wouldn't convert. So finally, the Iranians said, you are all Christians. And it's because you are Christians, you don't want to convert. But they said to themselves, but we're not Christians, we're Muslims. So they concluded finally that they should learn the Christian faith. Now, where were they living? In tunnels in the Iranian mountains were to be found the prison camps. Totally cut off from everywhere else. The men slept three to a bed. Their food supplies were limited, so what they did, and there were about 35 of them, they found themselves a Christian, who was one of Saddam's soldiers, and he had been captured. And they said to this man, you must teach us the Christian faith. So because they stepped three to two beds, pushed together, they put the poor Christian in the middle, and every night his job was to teach them Christianity. And every night they changed beds, so another two jumped into bed, and he had to teach them the Christian faith. They managed to get a Bible, and so they began to learn the Christian faith. And after a while, they all became Christians. Well, the Iranian guards found out. And one day, they called all those men to form a line, and then said to them, We know you've become Christians. If you continue, tomorrow morning we will hang you at dawn, and you must choose. Six of the men took the step forward and said, we are Christians, you can kill us if you wish. The remarkable thing that happened was that very day Saddam Hussein issued a public notice. If the Iranians kill one Iraqi soldier, prisoner of war, He will kill ten Iranians, prisoner of war. My letter says this, and God interrupted what the Iranians were going to do. I want you to think about that. No missionary work from the west or anywhere else. A prison camp in tunnels in the mountains of Iran. And the Holy Spirit was the missionary. Bringing these people to faith in Christ. Using a Christian, Iraqi, prisoner of war, co-opted against his will. And God worked. And may I say, that is what God has been doing. And that is what God is doing in our day. He is building his church. I have a friend who is a very close friend. He is regarded as one of the world's leading Muslim reformers. And he, he writes in many a newspaper, and his advice is sought by government on counter-terrorism. This good gentleman and I were sitting down, and he told me a story. He trained as a terrorist on the Swahiri, the present leader of Al-Qaeda. He was a medical student, but... Now a terrorist. And he was deployed to blow up and attack a lot of innocent people. And as he was about to give the command to kill, he said, Jesus spoke to him. And said, what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? This man said, I could not give the attack. Suddenly the love of Jesus filled my heart and there was no hate there. So he goes home, meets his wife, and she comes out to him, uh, he wants to tell her what had happened to him, but he was nervous because she was more fanatical than he was. And his wife comes out with a story, I was lying in my bed, and then Jesus came and appeared to me, and said to me, follow him. And I said to Jesus, should I leave Islam? And Jesus says, yes, you must. It's, not a, it's an evil religion. And she doesn't know what to do. Then the little boy, their son, ten-year-old, come running up to them and says, Mommy, Daddy, I keep hearing footsteps around the house and I can't find anybody. So they go to the front door and they found a pair of sandals. Old sandals. And they concluded that Jesus had visited each of them separately. That's what God is doing. In our world. And when we think of mission today. This worldwide mission movement. It can be an individual. It can be a church. It can be a community. Suddenly now across the whole world. God is moving his people to be involved. To be engaged. To build his church. A worldwide church. A worldwide missionary movement. But thirdly. I see a suffering church. The gospel going out, not just in the past from the powerful West, to the weak non-Western world, but now from the weak and powerless. Now last year, you may have seen on the, the news, the Dadaab refugee camp in northeast Kenya, the largest refugee camp in the world. Well, I was in some part of the world, and I was looking at BBC News, and I saw pictures of the camp, and then I saw a lady, and she was different. The reason why she was different is that she didn't have her head covered, and her dress didn't hit the whole ground. It was slightly short. So I said to myself, I said to Rosemary, look, there's something odd here. There's a lady who don't, hasn't got her head covered, and her dress is slightly too short. This doesn't fit. So I got home phoned a friend of mine, an evangelist in northeast Kenya, and said, can you please send someone into the Dadaab refugee camp and find out what's going on? Are there any Christians? He came back with the news. There are over 600 Christian families. There are six churches made up of Congolese, peoples from Burundi, peoples from Sudan. There are pastors there. They haven't got any Bibles they're only having one familiar day their children are in desperate plight we mounted a massive relief not just of food and humanitarian but now to provide bibles and spiritual material in that refugee camp where the church of jesus christ was may i say this is what is taking place now as we look at the church and suffering It isn't just suffering as an end in itself, but how God is using his people, the weakest of the weak, the poorest of the poor, those who are being persecuted, the alienated, are now moving out and ministering the gospel. And a suffering church emulates Jesus Christ, their Lord, in pushing the gospel out. So what is God doing? building his church, moving his people out, emulating his son. So how do we respond? May I suggest as you look at this passage, and I'll give you a response that is very brief. Firstly, the need for prayer. How does this passage begin? A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk according to Shuganoth, verse 1. The prophet turns to prayer. But it's a rather interesting kind of praying, because it is set to wild, triumphalistic, enthusiastic music. This word shiganoth here, and if you look at the meaning. In other words, the prophet just doesn't come and to pray quietly. He's excited. He's enthusiastic. His whole soul is now in his prayers. And perhaps he's dancing around and hopping around from one foot to the next. There is excitement in his prayer. And may I say, we've got to pray. And I say that, do we really want to pray? You know, last year I had a rather sad sad experience. Lots of our big cities in, in in England, we have large Muslim communities and lots of communities from Africa. And unfortunately, the African Christians are finding a lot of their young people are all becoming Muslims. So they approached me and I said, I tell you what, I will bring two teachers over, one from America, a friend of mine, Carl Ellis, who is a black reform pastor, with an organization that rescues uh, young black people from Islam. And he will help you as churches. And another friend of mine from Guyana. So we paid pray, for these two teachers to come over. We organized meetings across uh, England. And guess what happened? It was football season in South Africa, the World Cup. Now these are dynamic black churches. So they decided, firstly, over the whole month of the football, they had shut down their prayer meeting. Now what to do with all the meetings we had arranged? Basically they said, if we went ahead, none of their people would come out. Because one particular Saturday you had Ghana playing some other African nation. And I said to myself, here are African Christians... Who are losing their young people to Islam and football takes precedence over their faith and over their prayer. I was discouraged and I was disillusioned. You say to those Christians, do you believe in prayer? They'll all shout Amen. They have 24-hour prayer. They take over theatre and they will pray and they've invited me into those prayer meetings. But when it comes to sport, They prefer to watch the television with sport, than to pray. When it comes to saving their young people, the football match was more important than their young people. Now what the prophet is saying here, what he's doing, he's praying. But his praying has so penetrated his life, that his life is prayer. That's why it is set to wild, enthusiastic music. And you know, some of the prayer meetings I attend in Asia is interesting. People don't just sit there and each of them pray. They all pray together and they walk about praying and the music is going. And they're all praying. And they keep at it. And that's the most important thing for them. So, what's God calling us to do? In mission, today, as his church, being built to pray. Now, you say to me, I pray. Well, Praise God. Well, do you pray enthusiastically, wildly, with great emotion, great fervor? Or is it, Lord, bless that person over there? You know, we need some enthusiasm. And enthusiasm is a biblical word. Entheos. That's where it comes from. In God, we actually begin to feel emotion. And this whole passage is now about the prophet becoming very, very emotional as he looks at what God is doing and he's going to pray. Triumphant, transformational what God is doing. The second thing is, brothers and sisters, we need revival. What does he pray? In our own time, revive your work. Do you know, missions often come out of revivals. The Protestant Reformation, the revival of the word of God, saw missions. The evangelical revival saw a whole new missionary movement being launched. Each time God has chosen to work and to bless his people, the outcome has been service. I think we live in a day of deadness. I spoke about Babylon on Friday night. And I mean it, brothers and sisters, about Babylon. You take the five things there the me generation, the pride and the arrogance, the covetousness generation, to be strong and powerful, our immoral generation, idolatry based on pleasure. It's not just out there, it's in our churches. It's in our hearts and in our lives. We expose Christianity, we follow a creed, but we are now shaped by the secular. 1950s, a man called Blair Mares wrote a book called The Christian Mind, and he wrote this. There is no longer a Christian mind. He wrote this in the 1950s. Why, he says, because Christian people no longer think Christianly. Their mind is a secular mind. Their worldview is a secular worldview. Babylon now shapes the very nature of their existence. Babylon must be broken. Babylon must be crushed. And that's what revival does. It brings us to God and God breaks us and he crushes us. We want to pray for mission, but let's start praying for ourselves. That God will revive his work. May I say this about revival? Revival generally only lasts one generation. Every new generation must see a new act of God. Well one generation we heard on Friday night is 40 years. So 40 years ago there was a vision. There was a revival, a renewal movement. 40 years on, now. What form, what shape is mission going to take from Calvary, Calvary, Bible Chapel? It's going to have to come out of a revived community. And that's returning back to God, pleading with God, imploring God, being faithful to God, hearing his voice and then acting upon it. Not just doing the same old thing in the same old way. That's the certain route to deadness. We need life, and life out of a new generation, with new commitments and new people. And I say this to your missionary committee. Are you all wanting to get involved in that mission community? You get old, you know, and we need to hand over to young people. But where are the young people? Young people don't want to do anything because they love Babylon too much. They spend their nights in the flesh pots, and they come to church on Sunday, and they haven't got time. To do the Lord's work. And it's left to the older people to carry the work of God. But who do they pass it on to? Where's the next generation? You that are young. You take giving. Most giving comes from the older people. Because the young people spend their money. It's easy to go and spend $4 or $5 for a Starbucks cup of coffee. And we don't think anything about it. And so we waste our resources when we should be thinking of God's work. And the real problem is this, the need for revival. And so the prophet prays for revival because he sees that is important, it is central. Thirdly, we need a new vision of God and his sovereignty. As you read on from verse 3 onwards, this vision of God sees God as coming. God came from T-Man. Our God is not static, our God is not dead, our God is not a God of the past, he is of the present and he's of the future. God constantly comes to his people, he visits his people, He's incarnate in their midst. We don't believe in a deistic view of God, God having created the world, leaves the world and sits on his throne. Now God is active in his world. He comes to you. He comes to me. He comes to his people. He came to this church 40 years ago as part of what he was doing across the world. Now there are new movements taking place. He's coming again to Calvary. He's coming again to you. He's coming again to Pastor Lee. Are we going to receive him? Our God is an ever-coming God, always doing a new thing, revealing himself, active, bringing new life and bringing transformation. We need to see the world, therefore, from God's perspective. What he is doing. And this is what happens to the prophet. Now as he sees God, he starts to tremble. Because he recognizes that this God he is dealing with is a God of judgment and a God of salvation. You see that in verses 12 and 13. God will bring judgment. I believe in hell. I wish I didn't believe in it, but I do because the Bible teaches it. I believe in a God who does get angry. He sees Babylon and he will crush it. God is not mocked. And if we believe in hell and judgment, we also believe in heaven and salvation. And so God says in verse 13, he comes forth to save his people. He is a savior. And that is what we are called to be, a saved people. And we are called to do, to go out and to take his salvation to the world. May I say, so once you see the world from those two perspectives... It changes you. If God is coming in judgment and his judgment is now, then can I continue to live the way I live? And can I continue to see people the way I see them? Because they are lost and they are on their way to hell. But if I move to the second point and I see salvation and I see God has saved me, Then he must save all of me, the whole of my life. Not just my soul, but my pockets, my gifts, my very being, the essence of who I am. And then I must take that salvation to the world outside. So that they too might come to know the Savior and be saved. But my final point is this. We must now have a new Trust in God. Because you know, God is faithful to us. And as you come to the end of this chapter, the prophet says, I hear, I tremble, my lips quiver. You know, when we stand before the presence of God, we can't be the same. You know, if you never shake and quiver before God, something's wrong with you. You know, God is awesome. He is transcendent, all-powerful, all-glorious. His glory fills time and space, heavens and earth, and he cannot be trifled with. If therefore I tremble, I go forward in trust and face an uncertain future. Though the fig tree does not blossom and no fruit is on the vine, Though the produce of the olive fails and the fields yield no food. Though the flock is cut off from the fold and there is no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and makes me tread upon the heights. God is victorious. He is triumphant. It is he that we serve. And it is he that will be with us. In all the vicissitudes and changes of life. Whether in plenty or in want. God will be with us. Because God is our strength. And he will take us forward. So I want to leave you with this thought. Of a God who is victorious. And we are his people, are going to share in that victory. So let's start sharing it in it now, today, as we come to the end of this, our missions conference. And I hope you've been blessed by it, and by the different speakers and messages and missionaries. Well, don't just rejoice in that blessing. Do something about it. Now become involved. It would be lovely to see every single person involved in this church, rather than praying, in giving, in going, in encouraging to be a part of God's glorious work. Amen.